Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 24 in the book of Hebrews titled, The Superiority of the Blood of Christ, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we're starting chapter 10 today, and it's really just a continuation of the author's train of thought in, in chapter 9, which is the superiority of Christ's priestly ministry over the Aaronic priesthood with the over and over repeated sacrifices where Christ has a once for all sacrifices. What are some of the unique contours we see in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 10? Wow, it's uh, just a great, great passage. And I've been mentioning Hebrews 10.4 again and again. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's huge. That's the statement of the complete ineffectiveness of the entire Mosaic animal sacrificial system in any real sense to cleanse people of sins. It was always symbolic. It was always a type and a shadow. The reality always was Christ. And so this is very vital for us. I, I actually am smiling uh, because right before we started, I felt like the Holy Spirit laid something on my heart. Never seen it before, but it's pretty cool. And it has to do with the word impossible. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It is impossible for the blood of Christ not to take away sin. Isn't that powerful? Mm -hmm. Think about that. I mean, if Christ died for you, you're going to heaven. And that, this is the power of the blood of Jesus to take away sins. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yes, infinitely effective. Infinitely effective, absolutely. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So I want to start with verse 1 where he says the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. I know we've talked about that in prior podcasts. Can you just give us a recap on how it's a shadow? Yeah. Maybe a foreshadow. Sure. Type, shadow, etc. The idea is it's just not, it's not the reality. It's not what really is effective. It was a picture. It was like an illustration. It was a symbol. And so that's what we want to look at. It. The, the blood of bulls and goats, the, the tabernacle, the Aaronic priesthood, all of that, even the temple under David and Solomon, uh, all of that was just a type and a shadow. Uh, the reality was the finished work of Christ on the cross. Old Covenant saints looking ahead to the day when that would come. Uh, New Testament saints looking at, if they were contemporary, or back at that once-for-all sacrifice. 
but it was just, it was not the reality. It was just a type, a shadow, a symbol. Now, here's the thing. The author is writing to Jews uh, for whom that seemed like the reality. That's what they knew. It's what they were used to, what they were accustomed to. There's indication even in the text that the temple was still operating, that the, the old covenant sacrificial system was still in full swing. And for them, that seemed reality. It was tangible. Whereas with Christ, his sacrifice was tangible at the time. But for them, they're looking back. They didn't perhaps actually see Jesus die on the cross. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but probably they didn't. And it's all faith. It's all by faith they have to trust in the blood of Christ. And so they're being tempted to go back to the physical sacrifices they were used to and had been used to their whole lives. And the author is saying, no, those were only ever a shadow. The reality is Christ. Yeah. And it says here in the text that it can never, by the same sacrifice that are offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Hmm. You know, we, we, we talked about individual cases, whereas maybe a sinner would would go to the tent and sacrifice, but his conscience wasn't really cleansed. Mm. But as, as I think of the nation of Israel as a whole, too, I mean, just the massive failure of the Old Covenant to keep the people worshiping Yahweh. They, mm. they were just continual apostates and eventually got exiled from the land. Yeah. So ultimately, the covenant was, it was ineffective. Yeah, it certainly didn't make them perfect. It didn't make their consciences perfect. Anyone who is genuinely a, a saint, an Old Testament saint, a godly person, they knew their sins. They knew that their sins were ever before them. David said his sins were more numerous than the hairs of his head. Yeah. He said, For, uh, remember not the sins of my youth. I mean, think about that. Think about that statement. He's still thinking years later about sins he committed when he was a teenager. And so the blood of bulls and goats can't cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. They're not able to make us perfect. And that word perfect is key because we must be perfect to stand in the presence of a holy God. At the end of verse 1, he says, you know, it's not ever, they're not able to make perfect those who draw near. Can you talk about the importance of drawing near to God and, and why, why it is we want to draw near and why the new covenant is so much better, specifically talking about drawing near? Well, there is a psalm in which it says that the wicked God knows from afar. So it's an interesting statement. He has perfect knowledge of them. He knows everything they've said, all the inclinations of their heart. He knows everything, but they're far from him. Or even as Isaiah said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So the language of being far from God is relational. In our sin, we are distant from God. We're, we're like uh, Cain cast out, or even Adam and Eve cast out of the Garden of Eden. We're, we're put at a distance from God. And so the work of Christ is to bring us close. As he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His work is to bring us near to God. I mean, why don't we go right to the nth degree and think about the beloved apostle, John, who pillowed his head on Jesus' breast. He's just laying his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. There's a sense of intimacy and closeness that Christ came to give us. And so the author frequently talks about drawing near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He talks about drawing near. So, so Christ has come to bring us who were at one point distant, far from God, to bring us very close relationally, to have an intimate relationship with God. Yeah, that's incredible. Now in verse 3, he says that in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. So how was there a reminder of sins every year? Well, it's endless repetition. They had the three times a year that all the Jewish males were to assemble at the one place that God would choose uh, from all of the tribes, and eventually it became the city of David, Jerusalem, and so they would assemble there uh, three times a year. 
and the centerpiece of those assemblies were was always animal sacrifice and so they had an endless reminder of the fact that they were sinful they were sinners and so just the animal sacrificial system as we've noted many times before was set up to remind them of sin the three lessons remember all sin deserves the death penalty death penalty can be paid by a substitute and substitute cannot be an animal these three things uh, it were just being pounded into these folks and so it was a continual reminder, an annual reminder, that's what the author says, of sins. So that is built into the Jewish ceremonial system the three times a year, especially, I would say, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to, to remember just how sinful the nation is. Do you think it's helpful for Christians to go back and regularly read these Old Testament sacrificial laws so that we really understand how great a savior we have in Christ? No, I think it's very helpful. Uh, that's what makes the Word of God timeless. Even though we, I and you, both of us, were never Jews, we never lived under the Old Covenant you know, sacrificial system. It was obsolete, obviously, millennia before we were born. Uh, still, we can read about it, and we can learn its lessons. And, and it gives us, a, I think it uh, has the power to give us an esteem for Christ and what he did on the cross. Yeah. So in verse 4, which you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, and I know we've talked about it before, he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Um, yet God did set this concept of sacrificial system, really, you know, one could argue from the time of Abel, um, Abel offered sacrifices, but then certainly codified in the law with Moses. But it is impossible for them to take away sins. So um, why the continual repetition? And what was the worshiper supposed to feel after they made a sacrifice? Yeah, I mean, let's just start with a simple assertion. It's just true. It is impossible for animal blood to atone for sin. Let's just, just nail that in our minds. It's always been true. Now, you might say, why is it? Okay, so, well, there's a number of ways we could answer that. One is because animals are lower than us in the created order, clearly. Jesus said, you're worth more than many sparrows. Or he said concerning his healings on the Sabbath, remember? He said, which of you, if he had a sheep went in and fell into a pit or, or a cow or something, would not lift it up? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Well, that says it right there. Humans are at a higher value than animals. So it's impossible for something of lower value to atone for human sin. You're a murderer. You're an adulterer. You violated some one of God's laws. How could an animal lower than you in the created order atone for your sin? You're the one that deserves to die. It's a lesser offering. Now, you think about that. Remember in Malachi where they're trying to uh, give inferior animals, you know, the lame and the blind animals? He's like, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? But they're trying to cheat. He says, cursed be the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and doesn't bring it. But I'm saying the whole thing is not acceptable. Yeah, I'm thinking of the psalm. I don't remember the, the reference, but where God says, you know, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 15. It's all mine. And if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Yeah, I don't, I'm not hungry <laughs> for, for animal blood here. It's all symbolic. So there's that. But also, let's keep in mind the full salvation. It's impossible for blood, uh, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins from our hearts. You, you just sinned. You offer a cow, and you're the same person. It hasn't transformed you. You're still a sinner. You yourself are not acceptable. The animal's not going to change that. So remember the two-step uh, where it says that he did not look on fa look look with favor on Cain and his offering. The problem is Cain. Now, why did he look with favor on Abel? Because of his faith. It is by faith that his sins were removed, not, not because of the animal offering that he offered. And so fundamentally, 
the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin from our hearts. They can't transform us. They can't take away the memory of sin so that we still feel guilty of our sins. And they can't take away our standing of sinner before God. The whole thing's symbolic. So we just nail that in our mind. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Now, what, were the, what was the worshiper supposed to be thinking? I think they're supposed to be humble. Psalm 51 gives us the pattern. I would offer animals and sacrifices if you desired them, but the sacrifices of God are a broken heart. It's just like the Pharisee and the tax collector. Don't look up to heaven, but beat your breast and say, be merciful to me, O God, the sinner. You'll go home justified. But fundamentally, now that Christ has come and has died on the cross, the only way we can be made right is by trusting in him. Yeah. Now, the author, he paints this beautiful contrast and really goes through the details of, he says that God prepared this body for Jesus, really preparing him for sacrifice. So let's go through those. He he says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, verse 5, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So when did Jesus say this, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me? Well, verse 5 says, when he came into the world. So that's the time, but obviously he was a little infant. So it could be, I don't want to be in any way disrespectful, but you think about somebody who is, uh, you know, a paratrooper. And just before he jumps out of the plane, he turns and says to his commanding officer, you know, for, for, for God and country. And he jumps, you know, so maybe right before the incarnation, when he knows exactly what he's doing in heaven, before he makes himself nothing, maybe that's when he says it. But keep in mind, whenever he says it, I think it's more of a timeless saying. And again, we have one of those beautiful inter-Trinitarian conversations here. Who is the one speaking? Well, look what it says. When Christ came into the world, he said. So Christ is the one speaking. Well, look what he says. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. You has got to be God the Father. The Father, yeah. And the, so he's speaking to his Father about the incarnation. It's pretty powerful. Now he's quoting a psalm, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. So what does this teach you about a Christological interpretation of the psalms? Well, certainly when it's quoted in the New Testament <laughs> yeah. as applying to Christ, we're safe. So here we have Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, and we have the, uh, the reason, the mentality of Jesus in entering the world, what he was seeking to do and what God the Father was seeking to do in preparing a body for Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah. And he, he rehearses this in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. But then in verse 7, he says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, mm. as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Mm. So talk about Jesus just for a second and his just laser focus to do the will do of the God, will of to not get sidetracked, um, you know, tempted into sin, to not seek his own glory. He would say things like in John, I do not seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks and judges. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, this is an amazing statement. So Christ is talking to the Father, and he's saying the reason why you prepared a body for me is that sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, and they and with them you were not pleased, even though the law required them to be made. We're going to go back over it again because the author goes back over it. He does repetition right into the text we're looking at here. But he's saying God was not pleased with the animal sacrifice, even though he required it to be made. So we should mean, understand that to mean it was not effective for forgiving his chosen people. It was not an effective atoning sacrifice. So he was not pleased in that sense. It was a tool that would not work. 
uh, a surgical tool, let's say, or a tool that was not effective. And so there had to be something better. And so God prepared, God the Father prepared a body for Jesus. And that word prepared, we're talking about knit together in the womb of the Virgin Mary, knit together in his mother's womb. And so we see very powerfully the intimate activity of God through the Holy Spirit in preparing a body in utero, an embryo, a holy embryo, and then knitting together so that he would at a certain point in time, you know, a few days after conception, have actual blood and a heart that was beating. The, the whole thing that's so marvelous how God knits a baby together in his mother's womb. But God was preparing specifically Jesus' body to have blood that he could shed on the cross. And so God prepared a body for him. But before he would die on the cross, it was a body for service. And so he said, here I am. It's written about me in the book or the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And you said, laser focus. All he wanted to do at every moment was to serve God, at every moment. But ultimately, by dying on the cross, his, the body was prepared for the purpose of laying it down on the cross. Wow. So Jesus came knowing the entire time that he was going to die on the cross as an atonement for sins. Yeah, he lived his whole life and actually had been throughout all eternity in his pre-incarnate state under the shadow of the cross. He knew from heaven Back in the days of David, back in the days of all of the animal sacrifices, he knew perfectly well in his pre-incarnate state. Every animal sacrifice prefigured his own death on the cross. He knew very well. There was no lack of knowledge in the pre-incarnate Christ. He, he was omniscient. Now, in the mystery of the incarnation, there were things he did not know, it seems, when he was a human, and he had to learn and grow, and he grew in wisdom and stature. But at the right time, he knew who his father was, and he knew that the animal sacrificial system was all about him. Well, this really blows up this uh, idea that Jesus is this tragic figure who was trying to bring the kingdom and he, you know, the world just wasn't ready and they crucified him. I mean, no, he came for that mission. He came to lay down his life. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew that he came to lay down his life. He also said very plainly, going back to laser focus, think about when he was being arrested the night before he was crucified and Peter wanted to rescue him, remember? And he drew his sword and cut off Malchus's ear, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus said, put your sword away. Healed Malchus's ear. But he said, put your sword away for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And then he said to Peter, do you think I could not call on my father? And he would at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scripture, let's say the book of the scroll here, be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? I must die. I would rather die than break scripture. And so the reason I entered the world was for this very hour, for this for this death. I think maybe for our listeners it would be helpful if we gave um, some of our favorite examples of where these things are written because obviously it, you know, if you're going to catalog all of them, there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about Christ, um, you know, birth, death, crucifixion. You know, the scriptures testify to him. But just for maybe a new student of the Bible and they would like some quick references, um, name some of your favorite and, and I'll name some of mine as well. Sure, I mean, the two central Old Testament prophecies of the death of Christ are Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Those are the best by far. Yeah, so Psalm 22, well, yeah. Did I steal yours? Yeah, okay, that's Okay, well, there you go. But yeah. They, yeah, they don't belong to us. They belong to all of God's people. And so Psalm 22 uh, begins with the famous statement that Jesus made from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he says later, you have pierced my hands and my feet. He's pictured as disfigured and poured out like water and dried up like a potsherd. And he's surrounded by enemies, strong bulls of Bashan surrounded 
surrounding him and they're saying, you know, calling things out. You know, I saved others, you can't save himself, all these things. Dividing his garments. Dividing the yeah. garments. It's a clear prediction of the death of Hannah, Jesus. And you've pointed out that, you know, the piercing the hands, you know, you pierce my hands, that was written before crucifixion was invented. It was even invented by so. the Assyrians about four centuries later. Um, and then Isaiah 53 gives much more the reason why. Whereas, and, and Psalm 22 does as well because there's this worldwide celebration of the redeemed as a result. You know, I actually think a, a good two-part outline of Psalm 22 is found in First Peter where it says uh, that, the, uh, that the Spirit of Christ in the prophets was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow or the subsequent glories. So that's a good two-part outline of Psalm 22. So you read, there's a very sad, kind of dirge-like feeling to the first half of the psalm, and then an, an exultant, celebrative feel uh, to the second half. And that's the resurrection. Um, but then in Isaiah 53, you get the theological reason why. And, and you could sum it up in one phrase, substitutionary atonement. You know, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. Yeah, that beautiful passage of this suffering servant. There are others I'm thinking of... Um more typology, not direct prophecy, but the bronze serpent, right? This this image lifted up on a pole, I think from Numbers 21. Um, powerful so the image lifted up of image, the lifted right? up, yeah. But you also have the look of faith. Yeah. It's by looking to Christ. And a, a one translation of Isaiah, I think it's 44, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The look aspect is a look of faith. That's the very verse that converted Charles Spurgeon. So the idea of looking like they looked at the bronze serpent, yeah, we could do that for hours, couldn't we? So there's some great, great Old Testament prophecies. But here's the thing. It's written about me in the book. Now, that's an incredible statement. Jesus again and again made this bold assertion that the scriptures were written about him. He said in John 5, Moses wrote about me. Think how arrogant that would have sounded to people who lived in that day. Moses wrote about me. And, you know, he wrote about him in the animal sacrificial system more than any other way. So the scriptures referred to Jesus. And again, after his resurrection, he said, everything that was written about me in the Psalms and the law and the prophets had to be fulfilled. And it was all laid out there. And he said, beginning from one scripture, going on, he showed them everything that was written about himself in the, in the Old Testament. Yeah, I think one of the, the greatest joys in the Christian life is searching the scriptures and finding and learning how they were testifying to the Christ um, it's it's kind of like, it's like a puzzle uh, yeah. because before Christ, they didn't really uh, they didn't really understand Nor the, the messianic they. figure. Nor could they. You look at the prediction that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and you read it. It's like yeah, you know, you see it looking back. It makes sense, but Bethlehem was Jesse and David's home and and all that, and it doesn't seem like a prediction of a future ruler. But it does speak of a ruler whose origins are from ancient times, and so now it makes sense. You look at it, but I don't think they were. You know, they were fully understanding. Although I, I will say that the that the scholars said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, so they knew that. But there are other aspects of it that they really had a hard time seeing, like the suffering servant. Yeah. Now, in verses 8 and 9 and 10, he's really making a exegetical argument based on, you know, when Jesus says the words. He says, he says when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, mm-hmm. offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings— and he gives a parenthesis, these are off according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. And his point is, he says, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Uh, so what does this just teach you about exegetical method in interpreting scripture? Well, first, just the, the meticulous 
care that the author of the Hebrews is giving, and he's done it before with Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He just works on that for two chapters. The Word of God's living and active, so it's worthy of detailed study. So the author does that, and, and also we have the sense of sequencing. First this comes, then that. Paul does the same thing with circumcision. You know, the promise that Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness came before circumcision. And so he proves that circumcision didn't ever produce justification, not even the case of the first Jew, the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham. He was circumcised as a justified person. It was just a symbol. It was a sign of the covenant that he had and the righteousness he had while he was still uncircumcised. So it's a sequenced argument. First this happens, then that, and that proves something. So first you've got the animal sacrifice, then you've got one who comes along and says, you didn't desire animal sacrifice, but a body you prepared for me. So the author's saying, in that sequencing, he's setting aside what was established earlier. Right, so he says he does away with the first, which is the sacrifice and offerings, right. in order to establish the second. Which the is body the that God had prepared him. for yeah. him, exactly. And then he says, by that will we have been sanctified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So I want to ask you two questions here is, what does it mean that we are sanctified? And then why is it so important that it's once for all? Yeah, I think in this case, sanctified means set apart as holy, you know, as God's holy possession. So I think this is really pointing toward justification. I don't think it's so much uh, pointing toward the holiness that the author refers to later, where he says, make every effort to live at peace with all people and to be holy, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's sanctification holiness or progressive holiness. This is more positional holiness. By one sacrifice, he has made holy, made perfect, those who um, trust in him, who believe in him through Jesus Christ once for all. So that once for all sanctification here means to be set apart unto God as holy, once for all. Hmm. Do you have any final comments on these 10 verses? Well, again, it points to the superiority of Christ over the animal sacrificial system. It is the third point of the three lessons of the sacrificial system. All sin deserves a death penalty, lesson number one. Lesson number two, death penalty can be paid by a substitute, but it is by this once for all versus endless repeating aspect that we learn, listen, the substitute cannot be an animal. It was just symbolic. So for us who never were under the animal sacrificial system, what it enables us to do is to look at those lessons and understand the fundamental concept of substitutionary blood atonement, that guilt can be transferred to Jesus and he dies so that we can be made holy and our consciences, our guilty consciences can be cleansed once for all. That's what we get out of this lesson. Amen. Well, that was episode 24 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for the finality of Christ's sacrifice, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.